So what kind of God do you serve? You know, what is, what is your king like? Depending on how you frame it, some of us might think of God as some sort of, some sort of miser, you know. He asks a lot and he gives little. You know, maybe we view him like the elder brother did in the prodigal son. You know, I have slaved for you my whole life, and yet you've never given a fatted calf for me and my friends. You know, you've asked a lot, but you've given little. You know, maybe you view God as one uh, who just has limitless negatives. You know, all of these commands of what you shall not do. And there he is, just kind of ruining every good time you're trying to have. Again, he asks a lot and gives little. But maybe you see him as one who gives a lot and asks little. And is that the correct way to view him? Or is he a God that gives a lot? Maybe he asks a lot, but he gives all that we need. Well, let us find out this morning as we look at this text of 1 Samuel. And I want us to see it under a few headings this morning. And I want us to begin with this idea of a troubling vow, a troubling vow. We begin our story in the middle of a war that's already underway. You'll remember last week, Jonathan, uh, in his uh, faith, in bravery, uh, went up against the Philistines, him and his armor bearer alone, and, you know, began uh, this great victory. And after he had, you know, subdued 20 men there, uh, the, the, the Philistines began to turn on one another. God caused a great confusion. And as uh, Saul heard the tumult, he decided that he would also take the troops and begin to chase after the Philistines. And that's where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in the middle of that battle. The Philistines are on the run. They're in complete disarray. You know, they're fighting themselves. This is really just a cleanup job. It shouldn't be that difficult unless you're Saul, who likes to make everything just a little more difficult than it needs to be. And we're told in those first verses that Saul puts a vow upon the men and because of this vow, they were hard-pressed against the Philistines. You have to see it as a causal connection. It's not that the Philistines were difficult to fight. It's that the fight became difficult because of an oath and a vow that Saul swore or he bound the men to. And the oath was this, no one eats all day until the Philistines are defeated. Now, until the sun sets, we are going to do nothing but fight all day long. And since Jonathan was already on the move, he didn't hear this decree of his father. He's out leading the charge. What an odd decision for Saul to make. You know, and you have to ask, where, where did it come from? There's no reason given. You'll notice he don't get any information that God came to Saul and told him, hey, here's the plan. I'd like you to not eat, and if you don't eat, I'll give you the victory. Instead, all we hear is Saul's motives for what he's doing. He says, do this, no one eats, until I am avenged of all of my enemies. Uh, you'll notice even his motives seem suspicious to the reader. They're all self-focused. All of the pronouns are turned inward, uh, and God is nary even in the picture. I mean, Saul has this desire for vengeance, but doesn't seem to have any concern for God's will. You know, the old adage uh, that's oftentimes attributed to Napoleon, others attributed to Frederick the Great, 
you know, that an army marches on its stomach. Uh, it seems then like a very strange thing when you've sent a bunch of people off into war, a bunch of men off into war and say the one rule is no eating until all the work is done. I mean, you've severely handicapped your own men. Uh, you know, the men have been on their feet all day, literally chasing down the Philistines in a foot race while carrying all of their gear. Uh, we're told later on in the text that they traveled from Michmash to Aijalon, which is about 22-ish miles. You know, it's nearly a marathon. Uh, so they've run all day long, chasing the enemy, fighting as they go. Uh, and they're told the one thing you can't do is eat. And as they're crossing through a forest, it says it's literally uh, dripping with honey. You know, the combs are laying on the ground, the honey is exposed. You know, if you ever have been hungry and then you see and smell food, uh, that only makes your hunger uh, all the more uh, uh, ravenous. And yet these men are withholding. No one's touching anything because they're afraid of this oath that Saul has put upon them. And, you know, what sustenance that would have been for them to be able to just taste some of this honey, to give them just a little bit of energy, a nice jolt uh, as they're going on this long run. I mean, maybe, uh, I'm not sure what your high school was like, but I have vivid memories, especially when I was living in Santa Barbara and wrestling was pretty serious there. Uh, of all the wrestlers at lunchtime walking in circles uh, around the lunch area with trash bags on, uh, uh, sucking on honey packets because they were all trying to make weight for that day's wrestling match. So they needed to lose weight, so they're walking around trying to sweat it out, and the only thing they're eating all day long because they need to make sure they don't go over the scale is honey because it has enough sugar and carbohydrates to both give you know, immediate and long-range energy. And so you know that's why they give you those nasty packets if you've ever run a race or a marathon, you know, those terrible gel packets, the same, the same exact point. And that's what's happening, you know, could have been happening here. But instead, they have to starve themselves out. They're in hot pursuit. They're gaining victory as they go. They're in this forest that is literally flowing with honey but they have a king who holds them back from this blessing because he's taken this rash and foolish vow for some unknown reason. Well, Jonathan, our hero and our victor, who is too busy, you know, out ahead taking scalps to have heard the commandment, uh, he sees the honey and he's like, yeah, that's, you know, that, that looks about right. I'll take some of that. And he dips the end of his spear into it, brings it to his mouth, and it says immediately his eyes brightened. You know, he gets this immediate jolt of energy. And as soon as we see his eyes brighten, the scene itself completely darkens. As someone tells him, hey, Jonathan, your father swore an oath saying, cursed is any man who eats before sunset. And this is the first time Jonathan's hearing about it, and he has been put under a curse. And notice we hear about Saul's foolishness declared out loud by his own son in the middle of this forest. He says, my father is a troubler in this land. And that's uh, an interesting phrase that we'll get to in a bit. He says, do you see how my eyes have brightened? How much more would the victory have been if we could have eaten from the spoil? You know, so notice what Jonathan's issue is. He says, 
My father has troubled the nation and ultimately the clearing of the land because our victory could have been far greater had he not been so foolish as to put this vow upon us. And you'll notice at the end of the text, the portion we didn't read, the Philistines will forever plague Saul's kingship. He will never get rid of them. And partly because of what we're reading this morning, because he's been a troubler in the land and he does foolishness time and time again. You'll notice it's why the men are faint. Verses 25 and 26, you know, instead of them flowing out of the victory of Jonathan and following behind him and making light work of the Philistines, notice the language, they are hard pressed. When you see that term in the Old Testament, normally it's because the enemy is surrounding the people and they're hard pressed by their enemies. But notice the men in Israel are hard pressed because Saul has taken this oath and they can't eat. So they're faint. They're hard pressed, not because the enemy's hard to fight. It's because they don't have the energy to do the fighting. And so Saul has caused trouble. I mean, the goal of Israel as they've come into the promised land has always been to rid the land of all of God's enemies. And Saul's oath did not help to that end. And so if that's bad, you'll notice it goes from bad to worse. We have a troubling vow and then a troubled people in verses 31 and following. As the fighting goes on and the miles are racked up, the sun must have finally set because we get this very quick shift in the men's mood, right? Uh, Immediately, they begin to slaughter the animals that they've taken from the spoil. And without much distance between the slaughtering and the eating, clearly there's not much time that takes place because it says, They're eating it with the blood still in it, which is in direct violation, of course, of Levitical law. They're disobeying God's commandment in doing this. But you'll notice they're disobeying partly because they've been provoked to disobey. They've been put under this foolish law of man while they're fighting. So when the sun finally sets, uh, they are so ravenous. The language even makes it sound animalistic. It says they pounced on the spoil and they ate it with the blood still contained therein. Again, provoked by Saul's foolish man-made law, they have been provoked to break the actual law of God. This king is a poor leader, and he's leading, you know, uh, whether unintentional or not, his own men into sin. But you'll notice this happens all the time. I mean, extra commandments, trying to to help God out with uh, your own self-invented piety often causes sin. I mean, Paul dealt with this uh, even in the epistles. He says, there's many out there that are saying, you know, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. This does no good in the restraining of the flesh. He even goes on to say that it's demonic, that that's oftentimes the advice of demons is to forbid things that God hasn't forbidden, forbidden in, in this hopes that while we think we're doing piously, it will actually provoke us to more sin. It never helps with the restraining of the flesh to take away what God has called blessed and to call it cursed. Notice they're in a land literally flowing with honey and they can't eat it, the blessing of God. You know, you'll notice this wild slaughter of animals are all, uh, for the most part, milk-producing animals. This is the land flowing with milk and honey, but they're not allowed to touch the blessing because of this foolish oath. You know, you see this oftentimes 
in Christianity, right? We, we make rules thinking we'll help people stay holy if we just make extra rules on top of God's rules for holiness. And it has the opposite effect. It provokes sin. I mean, you look at our own national history, right? Uh, uh, prohibition had tons of unintended consequences. And there's a reason, for instance, that our nation struggles with binge, drink, binge drinking and alcoholism far more than most European nations that didn't make something like alcohol taboo when God had it made it taboo. You know, Christian parents, we need to be careful. You know, we live in a culture that keeps saying, you know, uh, postpone getting married, postpone getting married, you know, make sure that you get your degree and then have a career and then you're established in your field, you know, make sure you've lived out all of your freedoms and then, you know, then get married. And then we also tell our children, okay, postpone, but also be holy, right? Be pure, don't engage in premarital sex. And so we're saying to our kids, the one thing that God's given to help us with the temptations sexually, marriage, don't do that. But also, we also don't want you to have sex. And again, it's a recipe for disaster. To forbid what God has called good or to call something cursed that God has blessed never brings about the righteousness that we intend. And so in you know, Christian households, it's why it's so important that we don't frame the whole Christian life in the negative, where everything just has a, a big no, you know, writ large over our life. You know, God is all about saying no. And so don't do these things without giving them any sort of positive instruction as to the way to handle appropriately such impulses or God-given desires. And so Saul comes in, to our story, he forbids what shouldn't have been forbidden. Now the people are sinning. And notice now all of a sudden, Saul is Mr. Spiritual. He comes in rebuking and is like, you know, we got to do this right, just like the law says. And he sets up a stone so they can kill their animals so they're no longer, you know, drinking of the blood. Uh, and we learn, now this is the very first time Saul's ever built an altar to the Lord. This is not his habit. Again, this is him trying to clean up a mess that he has created. And so we have this troubling situation with these men. And then finally, we have the troubler revealed. No sooner does Saul set up this altar and let his men finish eating, than he turns to them and says, okay, let's pull an all-nighter. You know, first he says, don't eat. And once they finally eat, and he says, now let's not sleep. <laughs> now, whether wise or not, surely it's a good idea to continue pursuing the enemy while you have them on the run. Would have been a lot better had they had the energy beforehand to keep doing so. But the men in goodwill say, hey, whatever you want us to do, we'll do. We're behind you. And interestingly enough, the only time in Scripture the priest steps in and says, hey, we might want to inquire the Lord about this before you just send the men off into war. Now, this is something the king should be doing. He should be calling for the priest to inquire of the Lord, but the priest literally interrupts him and says, before we do what you're saying we should do, maybe we should ask God what his thoughts are. And so Saul agrees, and they inquire of God, and God remains silent. You know, you think this might just be a neutral reality, but we've already been told 
when Israel was asking for a king, one of the things Samuel said is, you're going to get a king like the nations, and there's going to come a day where you will call on me, and on that day I will not answer you. It's already been shown that when God doesn't answer you when you inquire of him, that's not neutral. That's negative. That's bad. Saul is giving him the silent treatment, much like, again, a wife would give the silent treatment. It's not a neutral thing. You know you're in trouble. Something has gone wrong. And so Saul, you know, sensing that that things are awry, doesn't have any sort of self-awareness to think, maybe I've done something that has caused this problem. Notice what he does. He says, okay, there's got to be sin in the camp. You know, he goes back thinking like the Aiken story, you know, God's judging us for some reason, so who's to blame? And I'm not leaving here until we find out who has sinned. And, you know, he's waiting for the people to hand someone over, you know, to rat out one of their friends. Uh, but these gentlemen know the, the, the golden rule that snitches get stitches, and they, uh, in their loyalty to Jonathan, you'll notice they don't say a word, which is interesting. We have God shunning Saul, and now all of his army shunning Saul. He's standing there all alone, alienated from his God and from his people. And so he says, all right, well, then we got to figure this out just like they did in Achan's day. And he calls for the priest and the Urim and the Thummim, which is basically a way of casting lots where you divide people into groups and you narrow down the groups, you know, the Urim is the curse lot. And so if, you know, you divide into two, wherever Urim lands, okay, now we've narrowed it down to this group. And you just keep narrowing it down and narrowing it down until you find the culprit. And oddly, we don't quite know why. Saul seems to maybe know that Jonathan might be involved in this because he keeps naming him. He separates all 12 tribes on one side and him and Jonathan on the other unheard of in scripture, to to narrow it down that way. And immediately the Urim falls on Saul and Jonathan. Until finally it's pulled and we find that Jonathan is the one who's condemned. He is the guilty party. And listen to Saul's language. Literally, he says, what have you done? You've heard those words before. That is the exact sentence that Samuel spoke to Saul after he sacrificed the sacrifice that would lose him his kingdom. Samuel comes and he looks at Saul, who's not a priest, who's committing sacrifices, and he says, what have you done? And from that moment on, Saul's kingdom is taken from him. Saul brings the exact same charge against Jonathan and says, what have you done? You know, passing on, if you will, the same form of guilt. He's equating Jonathan's infraction even with his own. Well, Jonathan's speech to his father shows us the travesty of the, this outcome, the inequity of it all. It, literally in the Hebrew, if I can do it as woodenly as possible, he says, I tasted a taste on the tip of my spear. He's trying to, sh- to minimize what he did. I mean, I tasted just a small little taste on the very tip of my spear. And he minimizes it to show, uh, to really maximize the foolishness of Saul and the punishment he's requiring. He says, and for this I die. You know, here I am in the middle of battle. I tasted a little bit of honey. And for this, I will be executed. 
And really it is putting on a billboard just the foolishness of Saul in the eyes of everybody. That this is the kind of king and the sort of justice that he promotes in his kingdom. You know, we may look at Jonathan and say, you know, he's not living up according to, you know, Jocko's form of extreme ownership, but he's not trying to dismiss what he did. He's trying to expose his father's injustice and his minimization. It really does amplify the penalty. And Saul, oddly, seems to express no regret. He says, as the Lord lives, you shall surely die. And we've seen a scene like this before where a father makes a stupid vow, Jephthah in the book of Judges, and when he realizes it's gonna cost his daughter her life, he says, oh, how you have troubled me. And he basically wants to die himself, but not with Saul. There is no tearing of the clothes. There's no deep regret. Saul gives no quarter and instead says, Jonathan must indeed die. What's odd is that we've already been told who is the source of trouble in Israel. Jonathan told us in the forest, he said, my father has troubled the land. But you'll notice he remains untroubled by all of the consequences and unaffected and uncondemned. Righteous Jonathan is gonna go down for the sins of his father. I mean, literally, when we're watching Jonathan, we're seeing the king we want, but Jonathan's no longer qualified for king because of his father's sins. That, that household has been removed from the running. And so now the people finally speak to Saul. I mean, it is a beautiful story. They've been silent. And they say, um, don't do these things, literally, that are right in your own eyes. And they swear an oath of their own. They say, as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head is going to fall to the ground this day. Uh, which sounds a little bit like a threat. <laughs> uh, you know, we're, we promise that that's not going to happen here. And so it says, in doing so, they ransomed Jonathan that day. And notice how they speak of Jonathan. The Lord was with him. And he worked this great salvation in Israel. In their defense of Jonathan, look at how humiliating it is for Saul. He says, they say, the God is with him. You know that God who won't even talk to you? And he saved Israel this day, exposing the fact that the king is not the savior of this people, but his son. And so what is going on here, as beautiful as the story is, what are we supposed to see in it? And what does it have to do with us? I mean, picture it. I mean, really, this whole discussion that we've just witnessed here at the end between Saul and Jonathan and the people, I mean, would look like a scene out of a horror film. I mean, it is an absolute bloodbath. Animals have been slaughtered and eaten without much taking place between the killing and the consumption. The people would be covered in blood. Once Saul brings in the proper stone, the ground would be covered with blood. There is blood and guilt, if you will, everywhere. Vows have been broken. The law has been broken. Guilt has been adjudicated and pronounced. And a single man 
is condemned. I mean, Saul has already been named the troubler of Israel. The same exact phrase that's used to describe Achan, interestingly enough, in that story. But Achan was the one chosen by Lot in that text, but not in ours. In our text, not the troubler, but the innocent one, the Savior of Israel is the one condemned. He is the one who stands in the place of the guilty and receives the judgment. And this king who's already been rejected due to his sin, the lots don't fall on him. You see, we see Jonathan condemned, but as we see it, our eyes are open to exactly what we want in a king. We have these two men before us, and we've been trying to answer the question, what are we looking for in a king? And we have seen in Saul that that is not our answer. And while Jonathan will not be our king, we know exactly what we want. We want one like him. Not one who makes foolish vows because of his selfish desire to protect his own reputation and to gain more status. Not one who works in self-interest just like the kings of the nation. We want this other one, this condemned one, one who serves and saves the nation, one who it is said of him, God fights with him or accompanies him. And of course, our eyes will behold a king like this. For our Savior will come and he will be condemned as the troubler of Israel. Though he did no evil, he will be condemned in the place of his father, Adam, for the sins he committed and that we all joined in. And we will see the lot fall on him as he is condemned and selfish sinners like you and I and people like Saul will go free. As we hear the cry of our Savior, my God, my God, why? I mean, why have you forsaken me? And it's that Savior, that King, who bids you to follow Him today. We follow a Savior who has won by serving, not by serving Himself, but constantly by serving us. And even as we read this morning, that Savior sits enthroned in heaven as King of kings and Lord of lords, and all authority in heaven and on earth are His. And according to Scripture, the enemy's on the run. I mean, the battle's already won. We are just in the cleanup mission. You know, we're, we're just chasing enemies that have already been defeated. Sin and death and the devil, the death knoll has already taken place. But our king does not starve us out in the process. But instead, he tells us to fight against these enemies that he's already defeated on our behalf, and he says to do so week in and week out as he serves us and feeds us and strengthens us for the mission that he's already accomplished on our behalf. He invites you to come and eat without money and without price. Not only does he invite you, he's the one that serves you as he invites you to eat. He serves his word week in and week out that's sweeter than honey in the honeycomb, that brightens the eyes and the face of those who hear and believe. 
He serves us his body and his blood and bread and wine that give us strength as we're ever more united to him and ever more drawn in to be uh, uh, conformed to his likeness. And even though oftentimes we leave these doors and we act as if we have no king at all, he comes back week in and week out, declares his sovereignty and his mercy and bids you to come and eat that you might be strengthened for the battle. And as foolish as we are, we sometimes, like Saul, seek to starve ourselves. But this one in his mercy seeks us and finds us and bids us time and time again that though we've been selfish and foolish and disobedient, that the work is done, the enemies are defeated, and he calls you once again to join in his ranks to be fed with nothing less than himself in order that we might finally see that battle come to a full end where finally that last enemy will be defeated, death at the resurrection, and there will be no more tears and no more sorrow and no more sin, no more apologies to make, no more regrets to be had. No more pit in your stomach when you wake up the next day. And Christ has promised that he's going to bring you to that day because he who began a good work is faithful to complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray.